0: From the fall of her first parents into sin. This world is one that has been filled with trouble and suffering. This is what God told Adam and Eve after they disobeyed his command and ate the forbidden fruit. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy thy desire shall be to thy husband. And he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, Dost hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall I bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till I return unto the ground, for out of it wast I taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. I notice here that God speaks both to Adam and Eve and he tells both them that the result of their sin would be that they would suffer sorrow. The result of their sin would they, is that they would both suffer sorrow. The woman would suffer sorrow in childbearing. The man would suffer sorrow in his labors. By the sweat of his brow, he would eat his meat. This was the consequences of their sin. It brought sorrow and suffering to them. And also to their children and succeeding generations. Here we have then the reason for suffering and sorrow in this world. It is because we are all part of a fallen creation. We live in a world that has been broken. A world that has been defiled by sin. And this is why there is sorrow and misery and torment in this world. This is what our aching joints and sore body preaches to us when we feel our bodies becoming sore and aching, they are reminding us that we are in a world that is under the curse of God. A world that is under God's displeasure. Our bodies, when we suffer pain, are really preaching to us that there's something wrong. Not only something wrong with us physically, but something wrong with creation itself. Because this is not how God created all things. He created all things perfect. But the problems and difficulties in life, even physically, remind us We're fallen creatures. And they also remind us that we therefore need salvation. Your sore back, your sore knees, your sore joints, your sickness, whatever your ailment might be, even as you get older and feel your body growing weaker, it is a reminder to you you're part of a fallen world like everyone else. And therefore you need to be saved. You need salvation. Suffering then is all part of living in this world of sin. However, for the Christian, for the believer, there is a suffering which is very much peculiar to them. The child of God does not only face what we could call the normal sorrows and troubles of life, but they also are faced with what the Bible calls suffering for righteousness' sake. Suffering for righteousness' sake. There are many places in God's word which speaks of this suffering. For example... In 2 Timothy 3, in the verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. God's servant makes it abundantly clear here. Living a godly life in the midst of this sinful and wicked world most certainly it will bring suffering. For all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The Lord Jesus told his disciples in John six thirty three, In the world... You shall have tribulation. The word tribulation means affliction, trouble, persecution. And this is what he said to his people. In this world, use my people. will suffer affliction, trouble, and persecution. You'll suffer tribulation. The Apostle John says in 1 John 3 and 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. The hatred of this world is what the Christian ought to expect. We ought to expect it because this is how men treated Christ. They hated him and they rejected him. They slew the Prince of Life. Therefore, the more our lives conform unto the likeness of our Savior, the more we too will be hated and scorned by this world. And so in this world, the Christian faces not only the normal sufferings of life, but also this peculiar suffering in relation to them. Suffering for righteousness sake. Now it is this subject of suffering as a Christian that Peter draws to our attention here in 1 Peter 3. God's servant in this passage has just been speaking to God's people about living the Christian life and how important it is in everything to live a life that brings glory and honor to the Lord. And this is what we have been considering now for many weeks How important it is that we as God's people in every department and area of life live for the glory and honor of the Lord. But now as Peter continues to speak to God's people he addresses this important issue of suffering as a Christian. I want us then to consider verses 13 and 14 here in 1 Peter 3 and think on this subject suffering as a Christian. Suffering as a Christian. Of course the subject would have been particularly relevant to God's people in Peter's day. For at that time, they were suffering some of the most brutal persecutions that believers have ever had to face. The wicked Nero was then emperor of Rome. And he took great delight in torturing and executing Christians in the most brutal and cruel ways imaginable. Indeed, he turned it into something that was fun for him. He took pleasure in it. He delighted in it. John Fox, in his book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, says this of the persecutions Nero inflicted on God's people. Nero even refined upon cruelty and contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination could design. In particular, He had some sewed up in skins of wild beasts and then worried by dogs until they expired and others dressed in shirts made stiff with wax fixed to axle trees and set on fire in his gardens in order to illuminate them. This was what these Christians Peter wrote to were facing. This was the type of suffering and persecution that was hanging over their heads. Terrible and brutal persecutions. Made into human torches. Driven out before wild animals to be devoured and eaten. These were the things happening to God's own dear people. As Peter wrote these words that we're coming to consider today. What then does Peter say to these believers? What message has he got for them in regard to suffering as Christians? Well notice with me a number of things Peter draws to their attention. In the first place here, Peter speaks of the suffering Christian's position. Of the suffering Christian's position. This is brought before us in the words of verse 13. See again what it says there. Verse 13, 1 Peter 3. And who is he that, sh- that, that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? Who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? In these words, Peter refers to God's people as those that are followers Of that which is good. Of course, this is what Christians are. They are followers of that which is good. They are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who is truly good. And so the people that Peter has in view here are believers in Jesus Christ. They are those who are saved. Those who have been born again. And now they are new creatures in Christ Jesus. The reason why God's servant speaks of Christians as those that are followers of that which is good is because this is the fruit of a genuine conversion. This is what happens when someone gets saved. They follow Christ. And they follow that which is good. The believer follows Christ's precepts. They follow his word. This is the true believer. Their lives conform to Christ's precepts, to his word. And to that which he says... And so no one has a right to claim to be a Christian who doesn't follow that which Christ says in his word. Who doesn't follow his precepts. The Christian not only follows Christ's precepts, they follow Christ's pattern. They follow his behavior, his conduct. They strive after Christ's likeness. The believer follows Christ's precepts. They follow Christ's pattern. They also follow Christ's purpose. What was Christ's purpose? What is Christ's purpose? It is to honor the Lord. That was his great purpose in this world. To do his father's will. He said, I would like to do thy will, oh my God. This was his purpose. And so it will be also for the Christian. Their purpose and goal in life will be to honor the Lord. The Christian then is very much a follower of that which is good. And this is a good summary of the believer. Christian is someone who follows that which is good. However, what Peter says about Christ's people here May seem at first reading to be a little strange. It may seem to be a little peculiar. He asks the question. Who is he that will harm you? If you be followers of that which is good. The thought and idea Peter is expressing in these words is. There is nothing that can harm you. If you be followers of that which is good. This is really the truth that God's servant is bringing before our minds here. Or the minds of these persecuted believers that he wrote to. He's asking Who will harm you? If you're Christ's followers. Because he wants them to remember. That because they are God's people. There's nothing. And there is no one that can harm them. This is what he wants them to be conscious of. He was saying this is your position. Who can harm you? None can harm you. If you're followers of that which is good. If you belong to Christ. Now of course... This is not speaking about their physical position. This is not speaking about their physical position. Peter is not saying you will not be physically harmed if you follow that which is good. The opposite was actually the case here. Very much so. These people physically were suffering great things. I've already referred to that. The most brutal and cruel and torturous treatment was falling upon them continually. And so Peter here is not speaking about their physical state. But what Peter is speaking about is their spiritual position as God's people. He's speaking about their spiritual position. He's saying to these people, you're followers of Christ and because of this there is no one and there is nothing that can harm your spiritual standing or position. And that's what he's focusing in upon here. Because you're followers of Christ, because you belong to him. There is no one and there is nothing that can harm that. Harm that wonderful standing that you have as Christ's people. You see, what we are reminded of here is what is ultimately important in life. And that's really what we're reminded of. What is ultimately important in life? What is ultimately important in life is not our physical possession, but it is our spiritual possession. This is ultimately, and crucially, what matters. It matters most importantly. I've actually brought an illustration with me today. And I'm going to show it to you. This is a wee bit strange compared to what I normally do. But I've seen this once. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to do it. This is a rope I got somewhere in Garva, a hardware store. I hope it holds up. But this rope, imagine this rope was you. This rope was you. Represented you, your person. Now, you and me, all people, will live in this world for a period of time and then we'll go into eternity. And we'll live in eternity forever. Now I want to think of this rope in this context. This rope, this little bit of brown tape I put in the end of it, represents, represents your life in this world. That's what it represents. Your life in this world. This little bit of brown tape. How long will you live in this world? Well, let's be really generous. Say a hundred years. Not many of us say a hundred years. But let's be generous. Your life a hundred years. This is a hundred years. This bit of brown tape. This is your life. This is what it represents. And then after you die, you'll get into God's great eternity. And how long will it last? Well, think of this rope. It will last all this time. It will last all of this time. It will keep lasting in fact it will last for all of this I've actually tied the rope into the pulpit to indicate that there's no end to it no end to it whatsoever therefore what is important what is ultimately important is it this wee tiny bit is this what really matters your little bit in this world is this what is so crucial and so vital for you you're living your days in this world like if it was all important and all the things of the world oh they're so crucial it's only that little tip and there's an eternity what about that what about that what about the eternity that's never ending you see this is what Peter was saying to these believers this is exactly what he was saying to them He was reminding them of what was ultimately important, what was ultimately crucial. Wasn't their physical existence in this world? It was their eternal existence. This is what he wanted them to consider. Consider, there's nobody that can harm your eternal existence. Oh yes, they can harm your physical existence in this world. They can harm that little tip of your life. But your eternal existence, your eternal possession, is being in Christ. That can't be harmed. That's what he was saying to these people. What is ultimately important cannot be harmed. He was saying to them, the world could not harm them. Yes, Nero and his friends could persecute them in the most terrible ways. Brutal ways. But they could never remove them from God's family. Never remove them from God's family. And so the world could not harm them. He was also reminding them the wicked one could not harm them. Satan would just love to be able to steal Christ's sheep and destroy them. Oh, he would love to do this. First Peter 5 and 8 tells us he's a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. This is what he would seek to do. But can he do it? Can, can the old serpent, the wicked one, devour Christ's people? Can he take them? Christ tells us I give on to them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And the word man is not in the original. And so it really means, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. No demon, no devil, is able to pluck the Christian out of the hand of Christ. This is their possession. And so Peter here was reminding these people, the world could not harm them. The wicked one could not harm them. He was also reminding them, their weakness could not harm them. Their weakness such is the nature of God's salvation that even when the Christian sins we are not cast out of God's family oh how loving and gracious and kind and good the Lord is when we sin and when we grieve the Lord even in the most terrible ways God doesn't forsake us he doesn't turn his back upon us he doesn't hold a grudge against us no he forgives us now don't get me wrong a Christian should be broken and contrite over their sin. And if you're not, there's something wrong. Something wrong. The true Christian will be broken over their sin. In fact, this is what we see in Scripture. When believers sinned and their sin was brought before them. that They wept and were broken over. Think of David and Peter. This is what happens, you see. When we sin. There is brokenness and sorrow. Yet at the same time, You ought to take comfort in the truth that even though the child of God falls, he shall not be utterly cast down. Why? For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Therefore, a Christian's own weakness, a Christian's own spiritual weakness, will not harm our position in Christ's family. And this is why Peter says to God's people here, in the midst of all of their persecutions, who is he that can harm you? He's asked in this rhetorical question to emphasize there's none that can. Because of your position has been followers of Christ. The apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 8. Wonderful words. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Think of those words. We are more than conquerors. A conqueror is someone who's all victorious, who's triumphant. But the Christian, what's the Christian? He's more and she's more than a conqueror. We're more than victorious. We're more than triumphant. This is our position. Why? Why is this the case with us? Why are we more than conquerors? Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we're more than conquerors. Because of our position. Because we're in a position where none can harm us. Not even death. Not demons. Not the disasters of this world. None of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. None. That's why we're more than conquerors. That's why there's none that can harm us. This is the suffering Christian's position. This is their position. None can harm us. None can harm our spiritual standing with God. What a blessed and comforting assurance this is. And this is what Peter was bringing before these people. Reminding them. Oh, you might suffer many things physically. But what ultimately matters, your eternal state, is being joined to Christ. None can harm that. And none can break that. And so we have here the suffering Christian's position. But then in the second place, notice with me here, the suffering Christians' privilege. This brings us to verse 14 now. Notice what it says in verse 14. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Again, we have to say these words seem very strange. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. These words are strange in any age, but especially when we remember the times in which Peter wrote to God's people, if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. How could this be? What would these suffering saints have to be happy about as they were being persecuted? Indeed, why would any Christian be happy about suffering for righteousness sake? Why would they be happy? And the word happy here means blessed as well. It's that thought of being blessed? And If you suffer for righteousness sake, Blessed are ye. Happy are ye. Well we should note here that God's servant is not saying that Christians should find physical enjoyment in suffering for righteousness sake. That's just absurd. No one in their right mind likes and enjoys suffering or, or enduring pain. No one does. And so he's not speaking about physical suffering here. Because th- that's not something that, that anyone could ever enjoy suffering, pain, and affliction. The Bible also teaches us that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so we should never seek for persecution. That's really what those words mean. We should pray that there might be peace in this world and peace for the church to exist. Sometimes people, you would think, are looking for persecution. And they would love to be persecuted so they could say that we've been persecuted. Well, that's not what the Christian ought to do. The Bible says we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Nevertheless, when persecution comes, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, in whatever form that might be, the Christian ought to possess a certain happiness and a certain joy. There are a number of reasons why the Christian, in the midst of suffering, ought to know happiness in their hearts and minds. Let's just think of some of these reasons. In the first place we can say the Christian should be happy while suffering for righteousness because of what it proves. We should be happy for suffering for righteousness sake because of what it proves. One of the marks of a true Christian is suffering for Christ. This is one of the marks of a true Christian in this world. Suffering for Christ. Second Timothy 2 and 12 tells us if you suffer you will also reign with him. If you deny him he will also deny us. And see what Paul is saying there. If you suffer with him, you will reign with him. And so really what he's saying is, you're going to suffer, and if you do so, it's an evident sign that one day you will reign with him. It's an evident sign that you're a believer, that you're a Christian. Suffering for righteousness' sake is then one of the great identifying marks that someone is a child of God. The Lord Jesus made this same point as he preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 5 just for a moment. Matthew chapter 5. And we'll read here verses 10 to 12. And again, these are familiar words, but it's good to consider them and bring them into focus. Matthew 5. The Lord Jesus is preaching here. And he has, they have his Beatitudes. And he says in verse 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're going to go to heaven. They're part of God's kingdom. Verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you. And say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Notice here. Those that suffer for Christ should rejoice. And they should rejoice for great is your reward in heaven. You see, it is the genuine Christian who suffers for righteousness' sake. The genuine Christian. There's many people in this world suffer for different reasons. But it's only the genuine Christian that suffers for righteousness' sake, suffers for Christ. And I want you to think about that for a moment. <clears throat> I want you to think about that. Should that not cause us to rejoice? Should that not cause us to be thrilled? As we suffer for righteousness sake, it's, 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 a, it's a mark of, of the fact that we're God's people. We're Christ's. We're different. If you side with Christ, this is what's going to happen. We're going to suffer so the Christian should be happy while suffering for righteousness' sake because of what it proves. In the second place, the Christian should be happy while suffering for righteousness' sake because of what it portrays. Because of what it betrays. Who was it that suffered the most terrible treatment for righteousness' sake? Who was it that was persecuted to a far greater degree than any other man? It was our Saviour, Lord. The Bible tells us He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. This was the life which our beloved lived in this world of sin. A life of persecution. A life of suffering. A life of affliction. Therefore when we suffer for righteousness sake, it is all part of living a Christ-like life. That's what it is. We're following in the footsteps of our saviour. We pray about living Christ like life. That's what we pray. At least I hope that's what we pray. Hope that's something you pray every day. Lord make me a Christ like Christian. Make me one who is more and more like the saviour. and Less and light, less like, like, like sin. Like this world. We ought then to rejoice when our lives become so Christ like. That we're subject to persecution. Subject to persecution. In one sense it would be a terribly sad thing if our lives were not worth Satan's attack. What an indictment against us that would be. Our lives were just so careless and so shallow in regard to spiritual things. We were such weak Christians and such empty Christians and such indifferent Christians But Satan couldn't even be aroused to attack us. What a sad situation if that was the case. Not Christ-like enough to suffer for righteousness' sake. We should rejoice if we suffer for righteousness' sake because of what it betrays. It betrays we are Christ's people. And we're living for his glory. Satan and his foes are displeased. And so the Christian should be happy while suffering for righteousness' sake because of what it proves, because of what it betrays. But also we can say the Christian should be happy while suffering for righteousness' sake because of what it proclaims. Because of what it proclaims. One of the greatest witnesses to the truth of the gospel is suffering for Christ. Is suffering for righteousness' sake we see this down through the history of the church think of that passage we read earlier when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image they wouldn't do it he made this golden image and he commanded all people were to bow down to his God and recognize it and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would not and they were reported to Nebuchadnezzar and he brought them in and he said listen all you have to do is bow down to my God and all will be well with you but if you don't, you would be thrown into the burning fiery furnace. And he was going to give them a second chance. And they said, hold on a wee minute. We don't need a second chance. We're not going to be doing it. You can give me whatever chances you want. We won't be doing it. Don't worry yourself about that. We're not going to be doing this. We're not going to be bound down to your image. And so Nebuchadnezzar in his fury he threw them into the burning fiery furnace. We know the story so well. The Lord preserved them. The Lord kept his hand upon them. And he brought them through the persecution. And the suffering for righteousness sake. But as these men stood then. Before Nebuchadnezzar. After standing firm for righteousness sake. The outcome was this. Remember the outcome. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill. What a witness and testimony these men were. As they stood firm, as they boldly said to Nebuchadnezzar, we will not do wrong, we will stand for righteousness. The whole situation was turned around, and Nebuchadnezzar came to recognize that their God was the only true God. Think of it for a moment. If, if, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had thought, "Well, you know, we would do far better off serving the Lord here in Babylon, and and if we die in the fiery furnace, well, you know, we'll not be a witness for truth any longer here." And, and there's Daniel, our friend. He'll be all alone. How it will do? We do? we'll bow down on this we'll not be genuine we'll bow down on this to get over this be go to hump and then we can still live as God's people afterwards because God wouldn't want us to suffer and, and, and the church to be so affected imagine they had behaved in that way how bad a testimony this would have been Nebuchadnezzar would never have recognised the Lord to be the only true God but you see they stood firm And they stood for righteousness' sake. And what a proclamation that was to the truth. Ah, We need to learn that lesson today, I believe. We need to learn that lesson today. It is not compromise with sin in this world that will take God's testimony and work forward. Never will be this. It is standing for that which is right and honorable and looking to the Lord to give the blessing because this is what God blesses them that honor him he will honor. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, put it this way. The blood of the martyrs is saved for the church. The blood of the martyrs is saved for the church. And that's what those early believers realized. As they suffered for righteousness sake. As they died. As the devil raged madly against them and his foes. Greater was God's blessing upon them. And God continued to give the increase. Same thing happened, of course, in the time of the Protestant Reformation. Rome, oh, the fury and rage by which she stood against Christ's own dear people and butchered them and killed them. But as those men stood firm like Martin Luther saying, here I stand, I can do no other. The Lord continued to bless and take the work forward. This is our Protestant heritage. This is our biblical heritage. This is the place we need to stand as God's people. And so the Christian ought to be happy with while suffering for righteousness' sake. Because this is one of the means God uses. God uses to take his work forward. The suffering, Christian's privilege. It's a privilege to suffer for righteousness' sake because it proves we are Christ's. It portrays us to be like Christ and it proclaims Christ in a po- most powerful manner. This is why Peter says here First Peter 3, 14 But, and if ye suffer for righteousness sake happy are ye. Happy are ye. And so we have the suffering Christians position here. We have the suffering Christians privilege. The final thing I want us to consider today is the suffering Christian's posture. Notice now the second half of verse 14. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. I know I have emphasized it already, but again think of the times that Peter wrote these words. Think of the dreadful times he wrote these words. Christians were being captured, thrown alive to wild animals. They were being turned into human tortures. And burned alive as entertainment for Nero and his friends. They were being locked into brass ovens. And roasted alive. These were some of the dreadful things taking place. To those that profess Christ as their saviour. These were the things that were happening. Yet as Peter says here to, this, to, to his suffering brethren. Be not afraid of their terror. Neither be troubled. What, what is he actually saying to them? Why would Peter say this? And how was it possible for these Christians to face such terrible things, such fearful and frightening things without fear of heart and trouble of mind? He says to these people, be not afraid of their terror, Neither be troubled. In the very fact that he speaks of terror here, So it shows that the things that they were facing were terrifying, were brutal. Why would Peter say this? Well, in the Bible, God tells his people on many occasions, be not afraid. He tells us this on many occasions, be not afraid. And of course, every time God says this to us in his word, there is, humanly speaking, reason to be afraid. God says, be not afraid, because we naturally will be afraid. That's why God says it. He doesn't say it because there's no reason to be afraid. He says it because, humanly speaking, there is reason to be afraid. This is why God always says these words or speaks these words. Consequently, this verse in 1 Peter 3:14 is the last time that God says to His people, "Be not afraid." This is the last time in Scripture where God says to His people these words, "Be not afraid." But in closing. I want us to turn to the first occasion God said to his people these words. And there we find the main reason, the greatest of all reasons, why we as Christ's people should not be afraid. Even when we're facing the most terrifying things and the most troubling things. We learn there in the first time God said to his people, be not afraid, why we should not be afraid. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 20 verse 1. Deuteronomy 20 in the verse 1. Here the Lord was speaking to his people, the people of Israel. These people were facing a terrifying prospect. They were going to go into the promised land. A land filled with giants and armies, fighting nations and people. Notice what the Lord says to his people here in Deuteronomy 20 verse 1. When they goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots, and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them. And so here we have the Lord telling these people, be not afraid. And of course, as we read these words, there's reason to be afraid. They're seeing armies, horses and chariots against them. But they also tells them why they're not to be afraid. Be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land. Of Egypt. Notice here why Israel were not to be afraid of their enemies. It was because God was with them, the God of their salvation. He was with them, He was by their side. He wouldn't forsake them, He wouldn't leave them to fight in their own strength or to row against the foe without helping them. This is why they were not to be afraid. Because the Lord, the Lord of their salvation was with them. And this is why Peter said to God's people in his day, Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. It was because God, the God of their salvation, was with them. The God who sent his son into this world to die upon the cross for his people. The God who poured out upon his son his, his wrath, his condemnation, that he might save and, and deliver his people was with them. He was by their side. And this is why Peter said this to these people. And this too is why we are not to be afraid of standing for truth and suffering for righteousness sake. This is why we are never to be afraid. Because our God, the God who has blessed us with his salvation, is constantly with us. Constantly with us. He's by our side. The Bible tells us he that is for us is greater than he that is against us. The Lord is for us and he is with us. Perhaps you suffer for righteousness sake in your life. Maybe it's in your family. You're the only believer perhaps in your house. Or the only believer in, in, in a family setting. And you suffer for that. You're laughed at. Never forget Christ is with you. Every single moment of every single day. Maybe it's in the workplace that people would scorn you and mock you. And remember this, you can suffer for righteousness' sake and be persecuted in a multitude of different ways. It doesn't just mean as it was happening to these people that they were being martyred. No, suffering for righteousness' sake can mean many things. Being shunned, been laughed at, being scorned. Because you are a believer. Never forget when this happens. The Lord is with you. And the Bible teaches us. When we suffer for righteousness sake. God is especially near his people. He's especially near them. Have we not already read of that Today. What happened when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the the burning fiery furnace? The Lord came especially near. He was there with them in the midst of the flames. That's why they weren't burned. It wasn't because they were special people. They were just believers like you and I. But because the Lord was with them and preserved them There wasn't even the smell of fire upon them. You see the Lord in a very special way. Draws near to his persecuted church. If you read history. You will read the testimony of many of God's people. Who were persecuted for for, for righteousness sake. And how they, they speak of at the time of persecution. It was such a blessed time. Because they knew God's presence like never before. Never before. It was such a thrilling time. Because the Lord was drawing near. And they knew him in the most intimate and personal way. This is what happens. This is what happens. When we suffer for righteousness sake. And so this ought to be our posture. The suffering Christian's posture. Not being fearful. Not being frightened of persecution. Not being frightened to stand up and defend Christ's cause. And speak the truth. Because we know that when we do so. The Lord will draw near. And he in a very unique way. Will be with us. The suffering Christian, their position, there's none that can harm them because they are Christ's. The suffering Christian's privilege, it's a privilege to suffer for our King. A wonderful privilege because of what it proves, because of what it portrays, and because of what it proclaims. And the suffering Christian's posture, we're not to be frightened, we're not to be fearful, we are to be bold. Speak the truth. May God help us to be those that live for his glory. In every situation in life. But especially. In most difficult. And hard circumstances. When we suffer for righteousness sake. May God bless his truth to our hearts today. For his own name's sake. Amen.